Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 78. This is a fairly long psalm, and so the RMM plan has us reading it over two days. In this episode, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 37. The ascription designates this psalm as a maskil of Asaph. A maskil is a teaching psalm or a wisdom psalm, and this psalm is a little bit of both. It appears to have been written by the original Asaph, as opposed to being the product of the choir that bears his name and that continue to produce worship material in subsequent generations. The content and focus of this psalm aligns very naturally with the concerns of the early Davidic dynasty. Willem van Gemmeren puts it this way, The psalmist is concerned to show how Ephraim lost its special status of blessing and prominence in favor of Judah. Closed quote. You will recall, of course, that at the end of the book of Genesis, the tribe of Joseph has been positioned for double blessing. Joseph gets a double portion, such that we stop talking about the tribe of Joseph and we start talking about Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons who are adopted by Jacob so as to ensure a double portion for Joseph. I realize that's complicated. It would be like if your dad had two sons and you were one, but he so favored you that he adopted your two sons and divided his property not in half, but in thirds and gave your brother one third and then your two sons each a third. The effect of that would be that your brother's portion was diminished and yours doubled. That's what happened at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph was moved to the front of the line, and Ephraim given a position of particular prominence. But if you keep reading the story, Ephraim squandered that position of privilege and was eventually supplanted by the tribe of Judah. David was a Judahite, not an Ephraimite. And that has to be explained. Why is it that so often in history, the more God blesses us, the worse we tend to do in our religious observances? That's one of the main issues that is being explored in this psalm. This psalm is a theological reading of national history. This is David's worship leader trying to make sense of God's providence over his covenant people. The Puritans used to say that after the book of Scripture, the book of providence ought to be our constant companion. We ought to be reading history so as to trace out the manner of God's actions and interventions. If we understand that, then we can conduct ourselves wisely. We can mine these stories for warnings and encouragement. And of course, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says that all Christians should be doing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and... In the sea. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Close quote. 
So these stories have been written down and preserved for our instruction. And Asaph has arranged these stories in order to highlight and foreground what he perceives to be the most important lessons for us to learn. So hear now the word of the Lord, a maskil of Asaph. Verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, there are a lot of really important Hebrew words in this brief introduction. Asaph calls on us to listen to his teaching, his Torah. He tells us that he is going to unleash a parable or a proverb. He's going to utter riddles and dark sayings. J. Alec Montier explains what we're supposed to be hearing in all of this. He says, what Asaph has in mind is a review of Israel's history told in such a way as to bring out its fundamental principle, closed quote. So what Asaph intends to do here is arrange the history of God's people so as to make plain what might otherwise remain obscure. His contention is that a particular arrangement of the story will serve to highlight the main lesson that all God's people ought to learn, and that cues us into the structure of this psalm. He's going to cover the history of Israel twice. Now remember, Asaph is David's choir master, so the history he's focused on is being viewed from a particular vantage point. He's going to review the history of Israel from the Exodus to the Davidic monarchy, and he's going to do it twice. First time, he's going to cover the Exodus and the desert wandering. The second time, he's going to focus on the Exodus, the desert wandering, and the conquest. And by arranging the material in this way, he intends for us to understand why God has chosen David and demoted Ephraim. Now, interestingly, this introduction is actually quoted by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 with reference to Jesus. Jesus speaks in parables, and Matthew says that his doing so is, in some sense, a fulfillment of these verses in Psalm 78. So Matthew 13, 35 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Matthew says that Asaph's review of history is ultimately fulfilled not in the reign of King David, but in the reign of King Jesus. And of course, that is absolutely fascinating and a fair ways beyond the immediate scope of this episode. But the point is, if we understand what Asaph is saying here, it will actually better position us to see and understand what God is doing ultimately through the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus fulfills the pattern that Asaph, the prophet and the psalmist, is tracing here. All right, so now we're even more interested. We jump back into the text at verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So one of the things that Asaph is saying here is that the failure of Ephraim was really the result of the failure of Israelite parents generally. The failure of the nation begins as the failure of the family. So Gordon Wenham, for example, says, 
Psalm 78 essentially demonstrates how Israel has persistently neglected the law they were given and told to teach to their children, closed quote. The argument is basically that Israel failed under the leadership of Ephraim because they forgot. And they forgot because mom and dad didn't teach. National calamity begins with domestic neglect. That's the first big lesson that Asaph is eager for us to see. His review of history now begins at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So in verse 5, Asaph says that God deposited a testimony in the history of Israel. He ordained for their story to tell his story, and he entrusted that story and the meaning embedded within it to the fathers within the covenant community. It was their job to tell the story and to use the story to teach the children about God. But they didn't do it. And that led to disaster on a national scale. Verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. In verse 9, Asaph is likely reflecting upon the disastrous campaign against the Philistines, which culminated in the loss of the ark and the destruction of the tabernacle at Shiloh. That was the military disaster which ultimately led to the ascendancy of the Davidic dynasty, humanly speaking. Israel was defeated because Israel had forgotten. They had forgotten who God was. They lost all the lessons they should have learned from the Exodus, and losing that, they lost the battle. J. Alec Matir, again, is marvelous here. He says, behind their defeat lay disobedience, and behind their disobedience lay forgetfulness. This, in a nutshell, is Asaph's explanation of the enigma of history considered from the human point of view. Closed quote. Wonderful. Asaph continues his review of history in verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, When the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. 
because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance, caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Derek Kidner summarizes this portion of Asaph's review, saying, Evidently, the more God gives, the less we appreciate it. Closed quote. And that is Asaph's point exactly. God was so faithful and so generous with that generation, the wilderness generation. He fed them, he led them, he watered them, he protected them. And the more he gave them, the less they appreciated it. He was faithful, but they were forgetful. They didn't appreciate what they were given, and they didn't respond to God as they should have, and this led to judgment. But just as they didn't learn from carrot, neither did they learn from stick. That's what he says in verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Asaph says that the people did not respond to carrot. They did not respond to stick. They responded briefly only to death. But even that response was superficial. When God slayed them, they sought him, but only to put an end to their punishment. It was never real. Verse 36 says, they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. They said what they needed to say to make it stop. But it was never real. They were never real in their love and trust of God. And yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them utterly. He restrained his anger and did not fully pour out his wrath. And that is one of the main things that Asaph is eager for us to see. He wants us to see the real reason why some are demoted and even excluded. The real reason is disobedience. And the real reason for that is forgetfulness. And the real reason for that is neglect on behalf of fathers. And yet, God does not destroy us utterly. He perseveres with his people. Asaph will tell this story again, this time in a slightly different way, in order to make that point and in order to land on the gift and mercy of the Davidic dynasty. Thanks be to God. 
And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. Of course, the easiest way to make use of all the material we have at Into the Word is by getting a hold of our app. You can find that at the Apple App Store or Google Play, and it very helpfully organizes all the materials that we've produced over the years. You can also connect with us on Facebook, and I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements, conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.